want to thank you for making it here on this rainy night. Um, this is our first Narrative Medicine Rounds in the, in the year 2016, so we welcome you. Um, as you might know, Narrative Medicine Rounds takes place the first Wednesday of the month. Um, so my, my name is Lee Gouda. I'm a general internist here at Columbia, and I run the uh, Foundations of Clinical Medicine course at the medical school. And tomorrow is our first day where we have our first class of the year, um, uh, class of 2019. Can you believe that? Living in the future. Uh, we're really excited. The students will start learning about taking a history and doing a physical exam. And uh, the reason I think that's so pertinent here is because the lessons that we learn in this space and have learned over many, many years have really informed how we train our medical students, how we think about deep listening, how that impacts the patient, how it affects the clinician, how it affects the team, and really how it affects society. We really think about this work as working on many different levels. And uh, we're really excited to launch tomorrow. Um, thinking about looking ahead over the next few months, I wanted you all to look at your calendars for the narrative medicine rounds coming up. In March, uh, March 2nd, we have Colin McCann with us. Um, using storytelling to bridge the divides of culture and conflict. April 6th, Dr. Helena Hansen, who's a psychiatrist and filmmaker, will be talking about her documentary, Managing the Fix. It's a documentary on race, class, and addiction pharmaceuticals. And May 4th, Dr. George Yancey will be with us, a philosopher who's written extensively about race, class, and the black experience. And uh, to introduce our very special speaker tonight is uh, Dr. Morris Spiegel, who teaches English at Film Oklahoma University. She's a co-founder of the program in narrative medicine and associate director of the program. Thank you. Good evening. It is a special pleasure for me to introduce Anne Burek Weiss to you, in part because of my personal feelings of affection, esteem, and gratitude to a remarkable and gifted person, a dear friend, from whom I've learned so much. Anne Burek Weiss has a long and distinguished career spanning social practice, supervision, and education, with specialties in the fields of aging and HIV AIDS. She provided clinical support for gay men's health crisis in New York for more than 15 years. She has spent much of her life visiting old people, researching old age, and teaching others how to relate to old people. She taught at Columbia University School of Social Work for 17 years. She's published over 50 articles and book reviews and presented over 150 keynote addresses and panel presentations. She has contributed essays and humor pieces to the New York Times and other newspapers. She is also a consultant for a ridiculously long list of agencies, including the New York Academy of Medicine, Lighthouse International, the New York State Department of Social Services, the New York Department for the Aging, the Alliance for Children and Families, and on and on and on, and that's just the tip of it. And with all this, she also maintains a private practice. She continues in her modest language to find ways to be useful. I will mention here only a couple of her many books. In The Caregiver's Tale, Loss and Renewal in Memoirs of Family Life, from 2006, she made a critical contribution to the understanding of the demands upon and needs of caregiving and caregivers, exploring a rich variety of published memoirs by authors who cared for ill or disabled family members and took her reader deeply into the complexity of the experience, not only the economic, physical, and emotional toll of caregiving, 
but its life-transforming dimensions as well. She is now at work on two new books. With Lynn Lawrence and Lynn Mahangos, she is co-editing a groundbreaking collection of writing on narrative social work, accounts from the field. It's forthcoming with Columbia University Press. And other work in progress, a book on old age, has the potent working title, Bone on Bone. The Lioness in Winter, Writing an Old Woman's Life, which Anne will talk about today, has been greeted with tremendous warmth and gratitude. It's a book I didn't realize I needed until I read it, is how one reader put it. Anne's use of an insistence on the term old woman in her subtitle has genuine political heft. Old woman is a term she fills with new and destigmatized meaning. As one reviewer put it, puts it, Barack Weiss wants all of us to overcome our resistance to aging and learn to live, quote, past the usual date of disintegration. This last phrase, the usual date of disintegration, is from one of the countless precious quoted passages in Anne's book. Here is the full sentence from Edith Wharton's A Backward Glance. Quote, in spite of illness, in spite even of the arch enemy's sorrow, one can remain alive long past the usual date of disintegration. If one is unafraid of change, insatiable in intellectual curiosity, interested in big things, and happy in small ways. This is Anne, who has spent her life helping people, nourishing and sustaining others, as she does in a new way in this beautiful book. She is a bringer of hope, of possibility, encouraging others to cultivate and access all our resources in order to bring the best of ourselves to our work and to our caring. As you will see, she is a brilliant reader of literature, a lucid, ingenious, and generous writer, a teacher for all seasons, and here I It seemed the worst thing that could happen to you. 
Then and there, I started assembling my virtual doomsday kit. Through the decades, stuffing it with knowledge and resources against the dreaded day when I would become one of them. I was not long into my 70s when I discovered I had packed sneakers to climb Mount Everest. I had had no idea of the rocky terrain, of the unexpected caverns and crevices, of the demands it would make to survive so many losses. The multiple assaults on body, mind, and soul. My husband had survived a stroke with aphasia and had health problems, heart problems. I'd begun to accumulate a few conditions of my own. Friends were getting ill. Some had died. It was like the darkening skies that preceded a tornado. Reading had helped me through every other stage of my life, and so reading about how other women had handled this period of decline was the logical next step. I was especially drawn to the genre known as life writing, and that's the inclusive term for autobiography, memoir, journal, personal essay, letters, in short, everything but fiction and poetry. What if I looked at the life writing of old women and compared these first-hand accounts to what we, as gerontologists, believed? It would help me, and perhaps other old women and clinicians who worked with us. I got a contract from Columbia University Press and began, you know how it is. There you are, you're reading along, turning pages, and then it's there. It's a paragraph, a phrase, an insight, and it all but takes your breath away. And you know that you have to pull it out of the book, and you have to have it as your own. It is speaking to you, even though you might not yet know what it is saying. I started collecting quotes. I played around with them. As one plays with beads, you are readying to string in a necklace. Shall I put the blues all together in this chapter? Mix them in with the greens and that? I wrote brief transitions between the quotes, mostly how they confirmed or confuted gerontological wisdom. I began with a small number of authors who I'd known and loved for years, Colette, M.F.K. Fisher, Maya Angelou, May Sarton, Florence Scott Maxwell, Doris Lessing, and I branched out from there. One author mentioned another. I came upon a book on a library shelf, or I read a good review. The books and quotes piled up, and then I put them into chapters. The usual suspects, one chapter on the body, one on relationships, and one, I now love to think, one, pet, one chapter on loss. How did I not yet realize the whole thing is lost? There was a chapter finally, but it was only on the loss of, of people close to you. I wrote and I discarded and I wrote again. It seemed to go on forever. In fact, it was about 10 years. I could not have done it alone. Mindy Foley loves writing groups, specifically Jack Saul and Helena Hansen, who are here, helped me to see that I couldn't get away with pages of quotes, no matter how compelling, that gerontological information could only go so far that the book I thought I was writing about other old women was actually a book about me. They asked me to write more about myself, and I didn't know if I had it in me. I didn't know if I had the courage. And what could I say? Unlike my literary mentors who had lived long, large, and out loud, my life had been as ordinary as a life could be. And then I remembered Eudora Welty, who concluded her memoir, What Writer's Beginnings, with this quote, As you have seen, 
I am a writer who came of a sheltered life. A sheltered life can be a daring life as well. For all serious daring starts from within. So now I had the courage to dare, but I needed some skills. And these came from the techniques of close reading and reflective writing that I learned in the classrooms of Rita Sharon and Morris Spiegel. Using the quotes that I had selected as prompts, I began to write to free associate and was frequently amazed at what resulted. With a bit of courage and a modicum of skill, I kept writing through months of discouragement at my own capacity to get a grip on the subject. I could not have continued without support, and they came in the form of family, friends, and colleagues who graciously read chapters in process and told me it was okay, it made sense, I should keep on going. Among them, my partners in crime and co-editing, the edited collection, narrative social work, Lynn Mahongos and Lynn Lawrence, and many of the authors in that book, um, as well as Jennifer Perillo, my editor at Columbia University Press, some of whom are in this room. During the time of my writing, my husband died. Then I fell and fractured my pelvis. My vision was slipping, and who knew what would happen next? The darkening skies had indeed resulted in a tornado. So like Dorothy and her friends on the Yellow Brick Road, I kept on walking till the sky brightened and I saw my way to the light. It was Joan Didion who got me going. The lioness in winter could, in fact, be said to be a response to her view of aging. <clears throat> and here I'm going to read a little bit from the prologue. Excuse me. <clears throat> she and I were of the same vintage. The years of Jones, Judas, Barbaras, and Robertus, the girls who were briefly young, busily middle-aged, and now old and alone, a decade ahead of the baby boomers. Didion's memoir, The Year of Magical Thinking in 2005, was about the sudden death of her husband, John Dunn. It predated my husband's death by five years. Blue Nights, in 2011, was about regrets and fears of declining powers. It predated my similar concerns by three years. I began with a critique of the, uh, of the bleak scenario she portrayed, all the more distressing, I perceived, because, I'm quoting from the prologue, the Lisas and Jennifers, who came after us, and the Tracys and Stacys who came after them, read Didion for news from a frontier that was comfortably still far away, recognizing happy images of the golden years to be a sham, captivated by her frail image, besotted by her rhythms. They hailed her writing for its ability to probe the dark places of aging. I did resonate with the regret she expressed I had already experienced more than a few, had replayed the scenes, imagined rewinding the tape, realized it was too late, too late. I too wakened each day to a self who no matter how hard she tried to look better than she feels, will never look 60 again. Among the many tragedies of Didion's life, the deaths of her husband and only child, she mourned the loss of four-inch heels with cashmere leggings, the gold hoop earrings, of course. Who but another old lady could understand? I returned to the year of magical thinking in 2010 after the sudden death of my husband, the love of my life for 54 years. My boy, like Didion's John, was taken in a sudden cruel flash. 
Less acute, but still painful, were the names filling our address books. People we thought to call with good news or bad, until we remembered, always the dull ache, sometimes a stab to the gut. Blue Nights was even bleaker, the illness and death of Didion's only child, shading into fears for her own future. And still, and yet, I protested her view of aging, female experience. So hard did I protest that it would not take the insight of Shakespeare or Freud to recognize that I protested too much. When the facts of Didion's life were so familiar and the style with which she presented them so compelling, it was tempting to succumb to the narrative line she imposed on it. All the good life is behind, only the fearful present and the dreaded future remains. We tell ourselves stories in order to live, she had famously observed, but how could the story she made for her lady years help her, me, anyone live? Some criticized Didion from, for writing from the perspective of a privileged woman. I was not among them. So many of us are privileged by ancestors with the foresight to immigrate to America, sparing us the concentration camp, the Hiroshima blast, war on our doorsteps, rape in our homes, early death for lack of antibiotics or vaccines. We live on. We're the largest group of old ladies the world has ever known. We live on to walk the streets in fear of skateboards and to sit in doctor's offices, mulling over whose name to place and the notification in case of emergency form. The world is filled with privileged women past a certain age who aren't dead yet. End of quote. And then I went on to write about a time I'd been to hear her speak on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the New York Review of Books. I'm beginning a quote again from my book. A table and chair will run in from stage left, and then, very, very slowly, she appeared, small, frail, expressionless, leaning heavily on a man who guided her to the chair. Without preamble, she began to read from a lengthy essay she had written at the height of the uproar surrounding the trial of the Central Park Five. These, as you will call, were black teenagers convicted of the gang rape and beating of a white woman, and they were recently exonerated after decades of imprisonment. Didion read in a monotone, sometimes the pause between words so long that it seemed she would never speak again. Was it her vision, her voice, her mind? Neither the applause at the end or even visible recognition of the crowd seemed to register and she was again, so very slowly, held to a standing position and walked off the stage. Watching her slow exit, I had to think that the stigma of old age and the desire to pass in a society that honors youth for youth's sake makes cowards of us all. And wonder, what would happen if we began to question assumptions about the inner and public life of old women, how we appear to ourselves, and how we present ourselves to the world. Dan was trying to present an image that hid the truth of the changes going on within her. And ironically, that was the theme of the essay she had just read, our failure to look an unpleasant reality in the eye and call it by its rightful name. I couldn't help but think how the night could have gone differently had Didion shown herself as she now was. 
the same visionary who commanded our breathless attention, but different now. She struggled to read from the original text. It could have been reformatted or enlarged for easier reading. I'm right, reading from 18-point font. <laughs> she was unable to walk on her own. <clears throat> she could have used the wheelchair, a walker, that was probably waiting on stage. Instead of feeling uncomfortably drawn into pretense, we would have had to face the facts of life and mortality enacted before our eyes, the very facts that the featured speeches, she foremost among them, devoted their literary lives to examining, end of quote. <clears throat> the Lion of Winter is my attempt to prove Diddy wrong, not for her, because it was her unassailable truth that old age was nothing but gloom and doom within and masquerade without, and for myself. And I'd like to read you a few passages from women who inspired me toward a different view, the women I call the lionesses. A few observations to begin. It probably goes without saying that this is an idiosyncratic selection. I chose the authors. I chose the books. I chose the passages within the books. Others might have chosen different authors, different books, different quotes. Surely they would have responded in different ways. The only thing that gave me the confidence to go my own way was a recognition that the more specific I could be, the more general might be the resonance with others. As many in this room well know, writing is a process of discovery, and it was not until writing the chapter on parents, but who were they, that I realized that I, like my father, Bob Urek, was a salesman. He was what is known as a manufacturer's representative, and his line was women's sportswear. His job was to persuade buyers in department stores and specialty shops to fill their racks with his skirts, slacks, and jackets. I'd sometimes overhear him speaking to buyers on the phone. You have to have this, he'd say. You need this. Funny thing, though, he did the same thing with me, and he was giving me the clothes. And then his enthusiasm for his product was such that he had to make me love it as he did. Look at that drape, he'd say. Feel that fabric. Isn't that beautiful? So, as my father's daughter, let me show you a few of my line, a few pieces from my line. And unfortunately, I don't have enough time to do them all, but if you buy the books, you'll, you'll read them. Um, I, uh, I want to start with Colette. She's the beginning and the end of everything. Um, her years were 1873, 1954. She was in a class by herself in March. I was in Paris, and I went to the Palais Royal, and I saw her home and where she would go out in the balcony. She, she was very disabled, and they pushed her out there so she could sleep outdoors. She wrote, she had a lamp, and she had a piece of blue paper over it, and so uh, she called it the Blue Lantern, and that was the name of her book. And she can do what very few can do. She looked the look from past to present in one paragraph. She simply takes your breath away. Um, one quote from her. As luck will have it, I am fated to suffer pain, which I reconcile with a gambler's spirit, my ultra-feminine gambler's spirit, my instinct for the game of life, if you prefer it. The last cat, towards the end of her life, gave every indication by the movement of a paw, by the smile on her face, that a trailing piece of string was still for her a plaything, 
food for feline thought and illusion, those who surround me will never let me want for pieces of string. And this. Every evil of man arises from the fact that he is unable to stay quietly in his room. I quote approximately this phrase of Pascal, but without savoring it overmuch, because I do not believe that wisdom consists of choosing immobility, but once immobilized, reduced to snapping up the most vivid and most assimilable of what happens within reach, I prefer to apply to our urban existence the phrase of a landowner jealous of his land. Love what's on top, love what's beneath. Not that the underneath of the city has any charms, but cut off from the exterior, let's enjoy what's within. Where is she now? There is always lurking quietly the question, 
Of what certainty there is that I, even I, will be gathered into the gentle arms of the Lord. I find surcease from the entanglement of questions only when I concede that I am not obliged to know everything. In a world where many desperately seek to know all the answers, it is not very popular to believe and then state, I do not need to know all things. I remind myself that it is sufficient that I know what I know and know that without believing that I will always know what I know or that what I know will always be true. Also, when I sense myself filling with rage at the absence of a beloved, I try as soon as possible to remember that my concerns and questions, my efforts and answers, should be focused on what I did or can learn from my departed love. What legacy was left which can help me in the art of living a good life? Kitty Mae Sarton, she wrote journals every year for, I don't know, about 10 years, which was really a delight because I'm stuck with fair use and you can only quote 250 words from every book. And she said many of the same things in many books. Um, they were quotidian in the extreme. I mean, every entry had a weather report and then it had a flower arrangement. And then you learned she was constipated a lot, so she would take the medicine and was it going to work or wouldn't it work? And sometimes you're just like, I don't know why I'm reading this. You know, I mean, she's been dead for years. And, and yet I'm reading this, but every now and then I get to something that just blows me away. And this is it, and it helps me. I am proud of the fact that I keep to such discipline as it took. For instance, today, with bad cramps, to get up, get my breakfast, carry it up on the tray, have it in bed, and then get up and make my bed, and finally decide what to wear. That is always a problem. Because part of the discipline is to keep myself fed and keep the house more or less tidy on weekends when I have no other help. And part of it is to try to look as well as I can. As I have said before, the routine is what keeps me from going to pieces. I might be crying, but if it is a little after four, as it is now, it is time to get up, go to my desk, and do something positive. About an hour later, it will be time to come down here, open my bed, and lay out my pajamas, as if I had a servant to do that. Lay out the book I'm going to read, and the slippers that I'm going to need for going down to get Piero and put him up, which happens over and over during the night. Um, Going, uh, Diana Adhill, I just came to her very recently. Um, she was born in 1917. She's still alive and writing. She has a new book out at the age of 98. It's called Alive Alivo. It's quite wonderful. Um, and she was a great editor and very well known in uh, Britain, but uh, not known here that well until quite recently when she wrote uh, her books uh, yesterday morning and somewhere near the end. And uh, this, this is her thoughts of death. The big event of old age, the thing which replaces love and creativity as a source of drama, is death. Probably the knowledge that it can't fail to come fairly soon is seriously frightening. I say probably because to be as frightened as I suspect I might be would be so disagreeable that I have to dodge it as everyone must. No doubt. There are many ways of dodging the one I favor is being rational, saying, quote, everyone who ever was, is, and shall be, comes to the end of life. So does everything. It is one of the absolute certainties, as ordinary as anything can be. 
So it can't be all that bad. Having said that, you then allow your mind to occupy itself with other matters. You do not need to force it. It is only too pleased to do so. <laughs> and then she returns to the theme seven years later. My own belief that we on our short-lived planet are part of the universe, simultaneously perfectly ordinary, and that there it is, and incalculably mysterious, in that it is beyond our comprehension, does not feel like believing in nothing, and it would never make me recruit anyone for slaughter. It feels like a state of infinite possibility, stimulating and enjoyable, not exactly comforting, but acceptable because true. Anna could have stopped there, but she does not, and she goes, goes on to think of what will survive her. Quote, if living in and out of our awareness, there are people who are beginning, to whom the years ahead are long and full of who knows what, it is a reminder, indeed it enables us to feel again, that we are not just dots at the end of thin black lines projecting into nothingness, but are parts of the broad, many-colored river teeming with beginnings, ripenings, decayings, new beginnings. We're still parts of it, and our dying will be part of it, just as these children's being young is. So while we still have the equipment to see this, let us not waste our time, closely. Um, the last quote on death comes from Alice Walker. She's one of my few baby boomers, I have a few baby boomers, and she's one. And she writes, In deep meditation, the self, the ego busy with its many projects, completely disappears. It is the most delightful experience imaginable. Perhaps death will be like this. You're sitting there, but light is streaming right through the place where you sit. This experience can be had in motion too, and it is the experience we have when giving ourselves away. It is as if we're dissolving into everything and everyone around us, and we recognize the illusion of separateness. And when someone thanks you for something, you thank them, because you realize it is only their acceptance of their gift that allows you to give. Sit with the thought of erasing yourself so that others might more gracefully arrive. One easy way to do this is to imagine the spot you were sitting in without you. It will remain full of itself, which contains also, somehow, the invisible essence of you. Um, I was going to end there. That was my first draft of the paper. But somehow I just couldn't do it. And then I remembered in the Jewish tradition, when you come back from the funeral, you have a schnapps, a little drink, and you say, L'chaim. You end with a L'chaim to life. And so I chose a quote by Edith Wharton, who was a very strange person to choose for L'chaim. <laughs> <laughs> this is in her autobiography. Life is the saddest thing there is next to death. Yet there are always new countries to see, new books to read, and I hope to write. A thousand little daily wonders to marvel at and rejoice in, and those magical moments when the mere discovery that, quote, the wood spurge has a cup of three brings not despair but delight. The visible world is a daily miracle for those who have eyes and ears 
and I still warm my hands thankfully at the old fire, though every year it is fed with the dry wood of moral memories. tell you that um, I enlarge it in Kindle sometimes when I'm reading from the book. Um, it, I don't believe it does, no. But that, that is a very, I mean, I, I have a vision problem, and I find I get, I read the Times on Kindle, uh, and that it's, a, it's a godsend, that, which is no excuse for this yes. not being a large print. I have to have you call my mother then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really, so um, it's just something to think about. Yeah, yeah absolutely. directly 
because the scope, many of these people, and I actually I realized when I was reading this, I skipped a page of MFK Fisher, which I couldn't go back. I, um, but many of them are so severely disabled. Some of them, um, MFK Fisher could, um, had to dictate, and sometimes she couldn't even speak because she had severe Parkinson's. And so I think that what comes out is very much coming out of that. And at it, it, it parts, she just says, it's just so unfair, you know, that at this time of my life I have so much to say. And then at another part, she will have like this wonderful, you know, uh, thing about how she just wants to live, leave a nice feeling of courtesy and enjoyment at the end of life. So I don't know if that answers your question, Marcia, but I, I think the, um, the body is very much embodied in the work. What about the lions in the Well, people have said that. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm a woman, and I just was drawn to writing about women and reading them. It seems to be looking at the audience and my own experience and yours that there are more women concerned with the topic than there are men. Is well, the women, old women outnumber men four to one. They, we live longer, and uh, so I get, but I, that's not really an excuse. I mean, Roger Angle has just written a book, This Old Man. Donald Hall has a very interesting book out. I'm, I'm um, running a, a reading group, I'm hoping, if I have full enrollment at the Center for Fiction called Reading Old Age, and we're going to do uh, Memento Mori by Muriel Spark. Um, we're going to do uh, Penelope Lively has a wonderful memoir out, a new one. We're going to do Donald Hall has an excellent collection of essays. And then we're going to do uh, Olive Kitteridge. So it was like almost impossible to pick four books, but I, I picked those. But there are men writing. Less a question and observation based on that question. Um, I think that it's logical that women would outnumber men because women live so much longer than men and are much more likely to reach old age and have to mm. navigate that space. Um, also, having read Roger Angel's book and the the most interesting part of it appeared separately in the New York Right. Um, he writes about the loss of a life of a tremendous amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, except by the time that he's writing about it, he has another wife. <laughs> um, which, I'm sorry to be cheeky, is much more likely to happen to a man than it is to a woman. So even if they live to be 96, as Roger Angel has, they sort of keep replacing each wife and the other. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because Joyce Carol Oates wrote uh, a, a widow memoir and uh, no sooner did the book come yes. out than she remarried. And well, she a lot of people... Maybe she was writing it, but I mean, it was within a year. 
And I think there were a lot of people who were very critical of that, but that was her experience. It, did, it didn't invalidate, you know, what she had to say about no, what you've gone through. It, it certainly changes oh, yeah. the nature of events all day. Oh, absolutely. If um, it's that much easier to acquire another companion yeah, who's yeah. that much younger than you and therefore able to take care of you. Well, maybe thank you for reminding me of this because many of these women had um, lovers, men, women, um, many years younger than themselves. Um, so that is true because I think if you're a famous person, uh, you are very attractive, uh, no matter how old you are, uh, what gender you are. Uh, yes, um, I think that would be a good way to get through old age by becoming famous. <laughs> <laughs> that would cut one's losses because yes. people are attracted to you. Women uh, often complain that they're seen uh, simply and valued simply for their physical selves, but fame, one could be valued for that. So that's a recommendation that I would make, having read Anne's wonderful book. Um, I, I, I want to make one comment uh, about Anne and about Joan Didion. I don't know Joan Didion's work very well. I read the two books Anne mentioned, and I also saw Joan Didion. I saw her at the 92nd Street Y give a talk. And I'm a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, so I saw her from a different route than the road Anne saw her from. I thought, this woman looks like a zombie. I think they have her over-medicated, that the antidepressants, there's too strong a dose. I saw her slow down movements as due to incorrect medication dose. So I don't know what's causing her to look and sound so bad and so retarded, and not retarded in an intellectual mm -hmm. sense, but slowed down. Very interesting. However, I also had the feeling, um, as I listened to Anne talk about her father, I thought, she has taken in her father, in her view of the world. Her father was a positive fellow who loved what he was doing, and loved his only child, right? Loved his daughter very much. And she was nourished by that love. And I think that's what infuses her view of the world. She doesn't have a depressive gene in her body. <laughs> she is a fortunate woman, but she took in her father's milk, so to say, and she gives it to us in this very beautiful book about, look at this world. Look at these beautiful goods. Look how wonderful it is. I think she deeply feels that, and that's a wonderful gift from her father, and that she gives us all. So thank you. Thank very you, much. Well, I think he's like, well, you can't all be that good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. I was just sitting here thinking about would you believe that the American infrastructure. We have these super highways that go everywhere and nowhere. Mm -hmm. and 
maybe it's time we rode some old roads and went through some old towns and take a serious look. Rachel Raymond was talking about, burned out doctor said that every day one should be surprised, inspired, and moved. And perhaps your work is a metaphor for our country, that we need to go down some old, old roads and stop and look at our I like that. Yeah. I like that very much. And you know, it, I don't want it to look like I just picked like all of these happy, happy quotes because many of these people had quotes that weren't that way or they were infused. But I, when I read that, the wood spurge has a cup of three. It just did something to me and I had no idea what a wood spurge was. And thank goodness for Google. I mean, I went in Google, it is a, a shrub. And um, it was based on a quote by Rossetti, and she probably believed that everybody in her generation knew this poem. And it's about the poet who is very depressed, and he goes into a churchyard, and everything is very bleak, and he looks, and there he sees this shrub, and it usually has a cup of two, you know, um, which is like a bud. And this one has a cup of three. And I can't tell you, that was like an incantation to me. Like on the hardest days, after my husband died, I just think the wood spurge has a couple three, and I had to say it till I began to believe it. So, thank you for going, looking at the old good things, like wood spurges. And, hi. Um, as a lifelong uh, reader and lover of literature, um, I, I thought your book was amazing because it helped me revisit so many of the writers that I love. And I loved how you grouped the different women writers. I'm just wondering if there are any millennials that you would like to fast forward and think about who would, which of the, the women writers uh, today in that group I would you love to? I can't relate. I, I just, you know, I know there was a time when I was fascinated with mating. It was a time when I was fascinated with motherhood. There were all of these times. They're really not where I am now. I mean, I find the baby boomers very interesting. Um, but I can't really go beyond that. I was wondering if there are any writer, any of those writers today who you would love when they're in their 80s to hear that voice. And that is it's such a very good question. Um, I have to think about that. Thank you. I, I like, for example, Elizabeth Straub, but she's not a millennial. I mean, these, these are all baby boomers. There are a lot of people in their 50s, 60s, you know. Yeah. <laughs> also, the early baby boomers are now 70. Who? The first year of baby boomers are now 70. Yeah. But the younger ones are in their 50s. The younger ones are in their early 50s. So, Anna, I mean, it seems like you've um, been immersed in the world of literature and books, and these people have traveled with you through your entire life, helping you kind of understand life, and now passing into old age. Um, has has the, the writing of the, this text given you a different insight into these writers that you've been so familiar with over many years? It's interesting. I, I've seen how they shrunk and yet they grew. I mean, they many of these, I mean, Colette wrote everything. 
I mean, she wrote novels, she wrote essays, uh, she, um, MFK Fisher was extraordinarily well known as a food writer, and she was really one of the first people who, who truly understood that food was more than recipes, that it was, that it was love and support. She wrote elegantly, um, the, the people, they wrote poetry, there were all kinds of things. At the very end, they couldn't do that anymore. And so they, all they could do was write little, little entries, little journals, and, and that just struck me that that will was there, and that they couldn't conceive of these huge things that they that they used to do, but that they were able to do them. And and some one thing I wrote in the book that just touched me beyond belief, and I might have said it too often in the book. Doris Lessing had won the Nobel Prize. She was 88 years old. What else did she have to do? She had to write a book, Alfred and Emily, and she revisited her parents. She said that great war, the war that was to end all war, it hung over my life. And in this book, she writes, part of it is a memoir of her parents' life, and part of it is a fictitious life. She gives them a beautiful life. And in the, in the fictitious part, um, the father goes on to be a happy farmer, and the mother goes on and has a lovely life. Uh, in the real life, um, he is injured in the war. She becomes his nurse, a very bitter woman, a bitter home. And here I thought, she's 88 years old, and she still has to do this. And this just struck me enormously, you know, when, when you think of her, her enormous earth and that that she did that. Then that answers your question deeply. That's beautiful. It's a bit of it. The last comment or the last comment? If, as a teacher of social workers, um, you had to choose between, and of course this is a fake choice, but if you only had the choice of Academic literature to teach them, or this literature to teach them, which would they learn? Oh, that's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, Barbara Simon, a colleague, and I, we once fantasized about just teaching a whole social work course based on literature because we could never get it through the curriculum committee. <laughs> absolutely, that's, that's it. Because um, unless you're looking at really fine quantitative studies um, uh, that are based on transcripts that are analyzed with great care and with great skill, um, you're looking at quantitative studies. Um, they are biased. Uh, the people who are, who are doing the research um, are asking the questions that they want the answers to. Um, it, it, it really, especially, especially in the social sciences, I, I think um, the empirical literature I find really very, very much wanting. I'm sure it's not that way in the biological sciences, but certainly in the social sciences. It's interesting because you seem to be saying that that analytical literature is ultimately more anecdotal than this. 
Well, you know, I really prize the anecdotal. Um, I, I have a scene in, in, in the book where I was asked to talk to this big conference in Washington about case management, and they had the policy review, the policy position, and the programmatic position, and then they had the consumer position, and they called me. And I said, why didn't you ask for a consumer? And I said, I think I know why. Because if a consumer were here, they would stand up and they would go on at great length about their individual problem. And this would be an idiosyncratic situation. It wouldn't fit in to anything that you're here to talk about. But that is what real life is. And I think people have to know that real life is messy and um, that's what you get out of this literature. I, I obviously hope, Jane, that I never had to make that total choice. And I don't want to, you know, if I had to do either or, I would. But certainly, if I could do both, that would be ideal. Because well, there is some. When I said it was an artificial question. Yeah, but I mean, there, there is fine, fine writing, yeah. So, Anne's books are available for purchase in the back. Um, shall we thank them for giving us.